Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Okay, well, good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Archer. I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Programme here at the London School of Economics. And I'm really super pleased to welcome our speaker tonight, Professor John Foote. John Foote is a professor of modern Italian history at the University of Bristol, and he previously taught at various institutions at Cambridge, up the road here at University College London, also in quite a number of Italian universities. John's doctoral research was on the socialist movement in Milan during and immediately after the First World War. And in addition to numerous scholarly articles, I mean, I didn't even try to count them all up, Um, His deep knowledge and expertise can be seen in a series of books that he's published. Books on the history of Italy in general, books on the history of Milan, also books on the history of Italian memory and Italian psychiatry, and right through to books on cycling and the history of football, uh, soccer football in, in, in Italy. He's written for various publications, The Guardian, The Times Literary Supplement, The London Review of Books. Also, he has a regular column, I think, in Internazionale, the Italian journal. And he's appeared, probably some of you have heard him, on the BBC and also on, um, I, think, I think you have a program yourself, or did have a program in Milan on Radio Popularo. Well, his work has, has won a number of prizes, and, and, and most recently he got a, a medal from the British Academy for eminent service to the study of Italian history. Well, John's most recent work, and he's got it here, is Blood and Power, the Rise and Fall of Italian Fascism. And, you know, it's not just a, a period that coincides with the centenary of the March on Rome, it's also a period that coincides with the return of the descendants of that tradition to the Prime Minister's office in Italy. So. There could really hardly be a more germane time to draw on the expertise and insights of our speaker tonight. So I'm really very grateful that you've been able to come. Um, Before you you start, can I just uh, say that John will be speaking for about 40, 45 minutes and then we have plenty of time for questions and discussion. We also have an online audience, so we have to um, include those in the questions and discussion as well. Um, But before you start, can I ask you all to join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor John Foote. Um, thank you very much um, for the introduction. Thank you for the invitation here. Um, I think I knew Ralph Miliband as a child. I almost certainly did, but I, I can't remember. But I almost certainly did meet him um, because his, he was a friend of my dad and... My dad was a big fan of the book Parliamentary Socialism, which was kind of his Bible, and I still think quite relevant today um, in many re- for many reasons, um, uh, which we, we won't go into in this talk. So what I want to do today is um, talk in the first part about historic Italian fascism, the kind of thing that's in my book, Blood and Power, and take you back to the March on Rome from 1922, and then in the second part, take you to 2022 and 23 and today and talk about the the people in power today in Italy and what kind of government we have and what kind of relationship that government has and those people have with 
that historic moment of um, the seizure of power, the first fascist seizure of power in the world um, in Rome in 1922. Right. Okay, so I want to take you back first to 1922. And um, the man in the middle of the photo, this is a man called Giuseppe Lemmi. Yeah, I'm sure you haven't heard of Giuseppe Lemmi. Giuseppe Lemmi was a communist um, in Rome. He joined the Communist Party in 1921. He'd previously been, been a socialist. He was a fairly high up communist in Rome, but not particularly a national figure at all. Um, he was quite involved in the organisation, the bureaucracy of the party, and he was also involved in a movement called the Aditi del Popolo, which was an armed movement um, of anti-fascists, who was very, one of the very few movements around the time of 1921-1922 to actually organise armed resistance to the rise of violent fascism. During the March on Rome, when uh, Mussolini's squadristi, the violent squads, groups of black-shirted, largely men, um, who had been rampaging through Italy throughout 1921 and most of 1922, decided to take central state power in the capital, Rome, there were a number of attacks on individuals, murders of individuals, um, violent attacks on people, um, in the city and across Italy at that time. One of the clichés about the March on Rome is that it was bloodless. It certainly wasn't bloodless. A lot of historiography in recent times has, has reintegrated the violence of that event into the, into the history and telling of that event. Giuseppe Lemmi was out in the streets, which was a bad idea, at the end of October 1922. He was recognised by Squadristi. He was kidnapped. He was taken to the fascist party headquarters in Rome, which was right opposite the parliament building, which was there to be the place where the fascists kind of took over central state power. He was then had his head shaved. Uh, you can see he's, he's got little tufts of hair on the side of his head, which is something that very often happened to socialists, communists, trade unionists, oppositionists, anybody who spoke out against fascism or the squadristi or resisted them at all, or in fact not even that, in 1921-22. Had his head shaved, had his beard shaved off. I have a photo of him with his beard and his hair, which shows that what he actually looked like most of the time. Um, he was then paraded through the streets, um, which was a classic tactic of humiliation that the squadristi used. It was both the humiliation of individual, but it was also a warning to everyone else that um, they would be next. It was, you know, to use the Maoist term, strike one to educate a hundred. Um, so he was paraded through streets. He had these uh, banners put round his neck. He had very. We, we can see in the series of photos which were taken by a, a photo reporter that he had um, a number of these um, uh, signs put round his neck, um, which were humiliating signs. One of them said, "I am a deserter, and I don't deserve to to be Italian." One of them refers to this one, in fact, where it says Lemmy. Lemmy, secretary of the pig Bombacci. Uh, and that refers to someone that Lemmy worked for, who was called Nicola Bombacci, who was a very leading communist, um, also a friend of Lenin, and one of the most famous national communists at that time. So he paraded through the streets. He was um, uh, in, the, in the middle of a baying crowd of armed 
Squad Risti, but also general public, and we can see in the pictures that people are, are laughing and crying. I'm laughing and smiling while he looks very dignified and obviously, we, we can assume, terrified. And the other thing in the, in the press report that happened to him, uh, according to the press, was that he had to drink a litre and a half of castor oil, um, which would have consequences that you can only imagine to your body, but which is another form of humiliation. It was frequent, frequently used by the squadristi um, against their opponents. Uh, I think it was started in the city of Ferrara, in 1920-1921 was often used to humiliate um, opponents publicly um, in, in the period of the rise of Italian fascism. And here we can see in the series of photos which we, we, we have very few images of this kind of attack um, in the period of 1921-22. We have a lot of images of the aftermath of attacks on buildings on, uh, on the party offices, trade union offices, individual houses being burnt, newspapers being burnt, newspaper offices. We have very few pictures of individual violence. And so these are very kind of precious and rare and illuminating um, as an account of something that happened to probably thousands, even tens of thousands of people in that very brief period of the rise of Italian fascism. Here we can see Lemmy in the middle of, and the, and the people around him are largely the squadristi, the black shirts, who have converged on Rome, something like 40,000 of them, to make what they called the revolution. Um, they had risen up in local areas, taking over public buildings, post offices, barracks, prisons, all across Italy. And then the plan was to converge on Rome. And at this point, they've reached Rome, they've won. Mussolini has been appointed prime minister, but they're still carrying out these acts of violence, these acts of humiliation. Uh, which go on throughout the days of the march on Rome, including the invasion of private houses, the attacks on individuals, and as I said, a numerous number of murders um, in the city of Rome in that period. Here we see him in the middle, the black-shirted squadristi all around. This is an irregular army, an illegal army, uh, a kind of militia, um, which nonetheless has uniform, um, often different kinds of uniform, and is, and is armed. Uh, with all kinds of different kinds of um, weapons, from pistols to revolvers to knives to clubs. Um, those were the kind of different... You can see all the black-shirted surrounding Lemmy. Lemmy was only released, um, according to the press, and we, don't, we can take this with a pinch of salt, uh, it is said in the, in the press reports that he was spotted uh, as this was going on um, by a leading fascist, one of the leaders of the March on Rome, one of the organisers of the March on Rome, a man called Emilio de Bono. And according again to the press, and I'm not sure this is true or not, but it's the only account we have, um, uh, de Bono ordered the, um, the uh, black shirts to release Lemmy. Um, the police then turned up, an interesting point about the rise of fascism, and there's no sign here of the police or the army or any kind of um, uh, intervention in this illegal kidnapping of a citizen who was doing nothing. The police then turned up and arrested not any of the black shirts, but Lemmy. Um, Lemmy was then, according to the archive, which I've just been digging out, nobody has really written about this event in any detail. In fact, for a long time, the person in Lemmy was mis misidentified with another communist called Francesco Miziano. Lemmy was then basically driven out of Rome in the aftermath of 
the March on Rome. He went to live in Venice. And the, the formula that the archive adopts, this is the secret police files, which are held on tens of thousands of people in Italy before fascism, under fascism, after fascism. Um, the secret police files use the formula, he then left politics, which is a, a way of, un, of saying that he's been driven out of politics by fear or by surveillance. And Lemmy was then followed, um, uh, monitored for the next 20 years in Venice as a dangerous, subversive communist. The other thing that is supposed to have happened to him, which is slightly bizarre and surreal, is that his head, according to the uh, newspaper, was painted in the colours of the Italian flag. Um, again, I'm not sure that happened. We can't tell. It's a black and white photo. Maybe it's an embellishment of, a, of, the, of the journalist. But nonetheless, it tells us something about what's going on in Rome at that time. And there's a close-up. This image was actually used in the credit sequence of one of the very few films Italians made about the March on Rome, a film called The March on Rome, made in 1962, which is actually a kind of comedy, um, or tragi-comedy, or Italian-style comedy, made by a director called Dino Risi, where two um, kind of people who aren't really fascists, played by Ugo Tognazzi and Vittorio Gasman, get caught up in The March on Rome and end up kind of going to Rome with the black shirts, but they don't really believe in it. It's a classic kind of interesting film because it kind of absolves a lot of Italians of any responsibility for fascism. It kind of separates the ordinary Italian from Italian fascism, which is a kind of tactic that in many ways also Italian historians have used after the um, rise and fall of Italian fascism. Um, so I want to use that story of Giuseppe Lemmi to just kind of get into some of the themes in my book very briefly about what my take on Italian fascism and why it succeeded. And of course, there are thousands of books on Italian fascism. Any aspect of Italian fascism has been written about. It's probably the most written about thing, certainly in Italian historiography, one of the most written about things in the world in 20th century history is Italian fascism. Also, because it connects up to so many other things Nazism, other totalitarianism, Second World War, um, dictatorships, etc., etc., etc. I decided when I was working on this, um, started about three or four years ago, to concentrate on two things. One was the violence and the organisation of violence and how that violence was organised and the originality of Italian fascism there and inventing a form of political violence which was incredibly effective in that context of 1921-1922. And also to concentrate on the victims. And that's why the Lemmy story interests me. Because so much of the stuff on Italian fascism seemed to me to talk about violence in a way that was very cold and um, without actually trying to talk about the violence, without actually trying to understand how it Im impacted on people's lives, their bodies, their families, their jobs, their daily lives. So in the book I take sort of 10, 15 individuals whose stories I found particularly interesting or who worked for the, for the stories and I kind of carry them through. Most of them are victims, some of them are fascists, some of them are bystanders. I take them through the period of before fascism, during fascism and even in some cases after fascism um, and I tell their stories through their encounter with violence and the way that violence changed their lives. And we find that violence has this kind of before and after effect on many people um, in, in the period of Italian fascism and the rise of Italian fascism, that their, vibes, their lives are totally transformed 
by something like the thing that happened to Giuseppe Lemmi, the attack that happened to Giuseppe Lemmi in October uh, 1922 in Rome, there, they, there's a before and an after, a trauma, a change to their life. They often have to go into exile. Uh, they're often separated from their families. Um, they often lose their, lose their jobs or are forced out of their jobs. They very often stop being political militants or trade unionists as a result of these attacks, either through fear or through practicality or through the fact they're actually moved. They have to move out of their local area because the fascists come once and say, we're going to parade you through town, we're going to force you to drink custard, or next time we come back, we're going to kill you. Um, so there's a clear warning that is given that you must leave politics. It's a very effective type of intimidation that's used. And so my analysis of this violence by the squadristi is a typical squadra from Italy of 1920-1921 that formed spontaneously right across Italy in that period. The originality of this violence comes out very clearly, I think, and the effectiveness of it in, in the studies that I've done and some of the analysis. This was a very small amount of people, probably at, at its maximum 40,000 people in the whole of Italy, so tiny, a football crowd, quite not even a big one. Um, half of the football crowd that was in the Milan derby uh, last night, um, who were volunteer militia, politicised militia, who organised themselves into very small groups, you know, 20, 30 people, and began to use violence as a political weapon. And they used it to destroy, to attack, to cleanse, as they called it, socialism, communism, um, anarchism, from the Italian landscape, but also trade unionism and the workers' movement. And this was very... They often announced what they were going to do. This was not done in secret. In fact, very much it wasn't done in secret. It was done openly. They would attack people. They would attack buildings. They used fire. Fire was a key part of the, of the strategy. Um, they, they would announce their arrival, often in 1921, which is the real peak of the black violence, the squadristi, who had very much a hierarchical um, um, formation, they had local leaders emerged from nowhere. These people emerged who then became key figures in the regime. They um, would write a letter to the mayor of a town, usually a left-wing mayor, say, we're coming on Sunday at 3 o'clock. Um, if you're still the mayor, you know what will happen to you. Uh, yours sincerely, um, the head of the fascists of Florence. Um, and they would send this letter to the mayor. And the mayor then is then faced with a choice. Um, they resign, leave politics, they dissolve the democratically elected local government, or they stay and take the consequences, which could be fatal, they could be a beating, they could be a burning down of a building. They would do what they said they were going to do. They would arrive and they would carry out what they said they were going to do. Um, I suppose the question you might be asking yourselves is, where is the state in all this? Why aren't they being stopped? And that's obviously a crucial part of the explanation. One part of the explanation is the, the incredible effectiveness of this organised political violence, which is a novelty, I think, in Europe and will also be copied by many other um, groups and in many other countries after that moment. Um, but the other thing is the state. And the state is doing two things. 
generally, 99% of the time. One, one thing it's doing is just leaving this to happen, allowing this to happen. The, there is, these illegal armed groups are acting with impunity. They don't get arrested, or very rarely get arrested. If they get arrested, the trial is a fast. They get released, they very rarely get prosecuted properly. Um, they don't get shot on, shot upon, as do many socialists and communists and trade unionists in this period. The other thing they do is actively arming and helping uh, and colluding in this violence. So you get guns that are given directly from uh, barracks to squadristi. Squadristi, you come directly from barracks into the squads and so on. Direct collusion, you find that in places like Bologna, Ferrara, Tuscany, um, places where the workers' movement. And what the other great enemy of the squadristi is democracy, the institutions of democracy. They want to destroy the democratically elected councils and eventually national government of Italy. And they're very effective in doing that. Uh, many of the councils, there were big uh, local elections held in uh, October 1920 in Italy, many of them won by the left, many by the extreme left, actually. Um, many of those local councils never took office under the weight of fascist violence, squadristi violence, in uh, 1920, 1921. And around the time that there was a general election in 1921, that election is marked by extreme violence, the murder of MPs, um, direct assassination is another, is another tactic that's used. Um, an MP in Bari, called Giuseppe Di Vagno, very unknown story internationally, elected MP is shot dead by Squadristi in the street after a meeting um, and nothing happens to his assailants. One interestingly, one of the first things that Mussolini does when he takes power in October 1922 is pass an amnesty for violence committed for national reasons. He divides up violence legally into fascist violence and red violence. Red violence is to be punished, prosecuted, um, and those people are to be put in jail. Black violence, national violence, is good. It's fine. And in fact, many of the people who are in jail, some of the fascists who've been arrested are released. And that's the first legal act of Mussolini's fascist government in 1922. So the main theme of my book, and there's lots more in it, but there isn't time to talk about today, is that double, is the attempt to understand the experience of the victims, some of the victims, to get under the skin of it, um, to follow their stories, because often they're very tragic. They're almost stories that could be in novels. Um, and there's, a, there's a one figure who was the mayor of Bologna for a very brief time before he was overthrown, a man called Ennio Nudi, who ends up going to about 20 countries in exile. And he writes these very sad letters that he never sees his family again. He's persecuted abroad and so on. So there are these amazing stories. He comes back to Italy in 1946 and no one knows who he is. Uh, no one really wants to talk to him. Um, and he's kind of desperate to get back to Italy. So there's all these kind of stories that go through also to post-war Italy trying to get under the skin of the effect on violence, trying to understand the violence as violence and not as statistics or, um, or something cold, um, uh, almost needing to use sort of literary tools in that way. Um, this is a great photo from Ravenna of a squadrista with a uh, grenade, knife and pistol, sort of armed literally to the teeth um, there and the black shirt and everything. 
Um, photos and images were important for the squadristi, but they wanted to communicate what they'd done. And this is often done through newspapers, but of course, images of destruction, like the one I showed earlier, of a newspaper um, office of a left-wing newspaper in Rome, were useful to, the, to getting the message out that this is going to happen to you. The message was, was very, the violence was kind of scientific in that term, in those terms of, of creating a climate of fear, of saying you could be next, of entering people's private homes and houses. Um, now, <laughs> stop, leave 1922, and I, I'm not drawing um, trite parallels here, I just, I'm, this is, um, I'm not going to do that because I don't think it really works, but I want to take you in the second part to, um, to 2022. Um, Italy's last general elections. And I just put the kind of broad results of those elections there. But I want to talk about the winner, really, of the election, which is down the bottom there, and where they come from, where that party comes from, and what that means for Italy today, what it also means for the memory of the period I've been talking about, of, of, them, of fascism, the rise of fascism, but also the regime. So we had this election, and there's, there will be a lot to say about it, maybe we can come back to it in the discussion, election after a, a, quite a long period of emergency national government. Italy has had a number of, has been through a kind of political crisis and economic crisis for quite a long time. And, as, as, and this has led to a number of so-called emergency governments, like governments not really elected through an election, but bankers and other people taking over the Italian system in a situation of emergency. And we've seen that actually quite a lot of times since the 1990s. The latest kind of emergency person to step in was Mario Draghi, uh, formerly of the um, European Central Bank, who was kind of seen as a saviour in the COVID crisis that Italy went through, which was particularly bad, as people will know, uh, where COVID hit first in, in Europe, and, and particularly deeply, uh, given the understandable lack of preparedness from, in many areas. Um, so this, this election came at the end of that uh, emergency government, which was an, a coalition of almost all the parties. The only party that stayed outside of it was the party Fratelli d'Italia, which is a far-right party, which I'll come back to in a minute. All the other parties were inside this national, kind of slightly dysfunctional uh, national coalition. Um, and then that fell apart, um, and national general elections were called for 2022. It didn't get to the end of the legislature. Um, and here we have the results of that election. And I think in a broad political point is that the centre-right was united. Um, the Italian electoral system, if, if you're divided, uh, you're going to lose. Um, and it's been like that, I mean, kind of forever, but in particular since the 1990s with changes to the electoral system. The centre-right was united with three main groupings, the Lega, Fratelli d'Italia, which I'll come back to, and Berlusconi's kind of weakening little Forza Italia, which used to be much bigger. The centre-left, or what you could broadly say centre-left, we can talk about that, was divided into three different parts. We had a kind of centrist grouping around Renzi. Um, we've got the five-star movement, which is, well, to classify as left would be inter interesting, but uh, that it was in government with, with, the, with the Democratic Party which is down the bottom there. So they were divided. They were, if you put all the votes together, they would have done much better, but they didn't have any agreements. And so a lot of that vote, those votes disperse. And Fratelli d'Italia, which had been 
at 4% in the last election, 2018, went up to 26% in this um, uh, election round. Um, so what is Fratelli d'Italia? Fratelli d'Italia is a far-right party. Um, it's a, it was a split from a party called the Italian Social Movement, the Movimento Sociale Italiano, which was a party formed in 1946 of basically people who'd come out of the Mussolini regime, not just out of the Mussolini regime, the worst aspects of the Mussolini regime. Mussolini fell in 1943, was reinstated by Hitler as a puppet government, which was much more extreme in many of its policies, including its anti-Semitism, racism and violence, called the Italian Social Republic. And the rump of that, many leading figures from that, some people who hadn't been killed, in 1945 to six, formed this party called the Italian Social Movement, which was a far-right party, a neo-fascist party, but one which operated within the democratic system. Um, it always stood in elections, it campaigned in elections, it elected deputies um, ever since 1946, um, and at local level, obviously, it stood in local elections. Um, and that party got between about 5% and 13% in all the elections up to the 1990s. It was basically excluded from national government. Nobody would go into government with the Italian social movement because Italy was, in theory, an anti-fascist republic and we, you couldn't have the neo-fascists in an anti-fascist republic. So they were outside, they were inside the democratic system but outside of it. And there were also parts of the MSI which were very subversive, used political violence, uh, flirted with terrorism, uh, and there were frequent calls to ban that party under various anti-fascist laws. It was never banned. It was always part of the Italian democratic, liberal democratic system. When we come to the 1990s, um, everything falls apart in Italy. There's a huge corruption scandal, end of the Cold War, um, the Communist Party rebrands itself and splits. Um, Christian Democrats who had run Italy fall apart. Um, and there's a huge political vacuum. Into that vacuum steps Silvio Berlusconi from nowhere, forming his own party called Forza Italia, which is not even a party. Um, and Silvio Berlusconi sees the opportunity to ally politically with what's left of those neo-fascists who have always been outside the system. So he brings them in for the first time into the Italian national government. They at the same time are going through a rebranding. They call themselves Alianza Nazionale. They change their name. To some extent, they repudiate fascism. They even cite Gramsci in one of their documents. Um, and they go through a kind of journey as well. They particularly concentrate on criticising the anti-Semitic aspects of Italian fascism. It only goes a certain way. So these neo-fascists, ex-neo-fascists, are in government in Italy from 1994 and are in and out of government ever since. And that causes, in 1994, a massive protest and a massive kind of rise in anti-fascism, which had been somewhat dormant in Italy. I was in Milan in 1994, and there was huge demonstrations against this bringing into the fold of these post-fascists, as they call themselves, anti-anti-fascists, neo-fascists, post-neo-fascists, 
lots of different labels for them. But they're in, and that becomes more and more acceptable to more and more people over time. And at local government, they govern regions, they govern local cities, they govern many parts of Italy, and they have key ministries. They never have the prime minister, but they have many key ministries, number two in the vice, vice prime minister. They're quite high up in the Italian state, uh, Alianza Nazionale. There's a part of the MSI that is never particularly happy with this moderate turn of Alianza Nazionale. There are many people there who, who kind of don't want to repudiate Mussolini and fascism and the kind of things that gave them their identity. And they want to still keep those things as part of their identity. And eventually, they split. It's also about personalities, it's also about corruption and political opportunity. They split into a much smaller grouping called Brothers of Italy, Fratelli d'Italia. And that's the, the split group that Giorgia Meloni, the current Prime Minister of Italy, goes into. So she doesn't stay in the mainstream post-fascist, anti-fascist, near-fascist thing. She goes into the split, smaller grouping called Fratelli d'Italia, which becomes bigger and bigger um, under her leadership. She joined the previous grouping as a teenager. That's her political world. She's grown up. She's done. She's been a politician for two decades. That's where she's carried out her life. Um, and she has kind of risen quite, quite quickly within that system. She was a minister in one of Berlusconi's governments. Um, she has um, uh, been head of this party for quite a long time and were very influential within it. Um, she stood in this election as favourite, um, partly because Fratelli d'Italia had been outside of that coalition and was able to say, we weren't part of this anti-democratic emergency government, partly because of being able to draw or wink at quite powerful and movements of Novaks and conspiracies and so on, they, which they drew on um, in, in some of their um, propaganda in the campaign. And also partly because the other contender for that role, the Lega, which was once a regionalist party, now a national party, um, had fallen away for made a lot of political mistakes in the meantime. They're really contending for the same votes. It was actually quite a boring election campaign because it was clear it was going to win, um, partly because of the configuration of the parties. So Maloney won. Maloney is prime minister. And so she's the first post-fascist, neo-fascist prime minister of Italy since the Second World War. What does that mean for what I said earlier? What does it mean for Europe? What does it mean for Italy? Well, first thing that's interesting, I think, is Maloney very, very rarely wants to talk about fascism. She, in her whole election campaign, she mentioned it once in English in the short film she made for the foreign press. She doesn't want to talk about it. Um, and the only thing she said in that film was the anti-Semitic laws were bad and fascism destroyed democracy, it was bad, and I don't want to talk about it anymore. So there's an area that she, it's not important to her in terms of her campaigning, it's not important to her in the way she talks to other politicians on the international stage, and it's not important to her in winning votes, um, at least on the surface, okay? Um, second thing is, what kind of politics do Fratelli d'Italia 
espouse? Well, they're kind of classic far-right politics that we could recognise probably from parts of the Conservative Party, um, Le Pen in, uh, in France, their big allies in Europe are Orban and the Polish, uh, current Polish administration. They fight the culture wars, they're anti-abortion, um, they are very much big believers in great replacement theory, which they are officially espousing as government policy um, at the moment. They're very much uh, stop the boats is one of their slogans, recognise that from anywhere. Um, so, you know, there's a classic far-right kind of narrative there. However, I would also add, if you dig under the surface of Maloney, Maloney plays the statesperson, also the first female prime minister in Italy, um, and has very carefully cultivated her image as mother, um, partly through an autobiography that was a bestseller. It's a very interesting uh, reimagining of, of a politician. Um, if you dig under the surface, you get someone like this. This is Ignazio La Russa. Ignazio La Russa is number two in the Italian state. Um, uh, well, maybe number three. President of Italy, Prime Minister. He's the President of the Senate, which is the upper house of Italy. Um, he's been a fascist since 1946, and his dad was a fascist under fascism. Um, he was a very militant fascist in the 1970s and was um, involved in some of the violence that took place. And this is his house um, in Milan and a little statue of Benito Mussolini that he was showing to journalists. You can get this on YouTube. Um, he plays it all for a bit of a joke. Um, he likes to pretend it's all a bit of a laugh. Here's Mussolini and he's got Mussolini. He's got Mussolini stamping on a red flag and, you know, it's all sort of kind of Goliardico, as they say in Italian, kind of jokey, but it is quite a serious thing. Um, and so I say, if you dig a little bit under the people who are in government now, uh, or if you, even if, if you go to party bases, people who've got a lot of power, you'll find a lot of this kind of stuff. So what does this mean for Italy? It doesn't mean that fascism coming back, the squadristi are not gonna come back. They're, they grew up in a democratic system. They are interested in power. Um, they're interested in winning votes. So let's kind of get that out of the way, that kind of elephant in the room out of the way. On the other hand, something that interests me a lot, if we're talking about historical memory, if we're talking about the way the Italians see the past, if we're talking about the way they see the regime of fascism, then I think there is potentially a lot of damage that can be done. And we saw this most graphically, and I always thought it was going to be an interesting moment, on the 25th of April. So. How long ago is that? Two weeks ago? Um, this was the first time that Maloney had had to deal with the 25th of April. The 25th of April was a national holiday. It's liberation from fascism day. It's a day when Italians all over Italy take to the streets, not necessarily to talk about anti-fascism. It's actually become a much more variegated political demonstration. But nonetheless, there are official parts to it. And what was she going to do on the 25th of April? And, you know, she did the bare minimum. She went to one of the ceremonies and she spoke for about three minutes in a very bland way. She wrote a letter to the Corriere della Sera expressing her opinion, which is classic MSI Fratelli d'Italia position on the resistance. We don't like the resistance, the resistance against fascism. We're not going to mention anti-fascism. We believe in something called pacification um, there were good people on both sides 
let's put it that way. That's the kind of line. And I think that is potentially an extremely problematic uh, um, you know, thing for a head of, head of um, a government to, to push. And that, that those kind of memory culture wars are things that this party has been very interested in for a very long time and are pushing now. They're not giving an inch on those things. Um, whereas in many other areas you might see that they're quite kind of pragmatic on Europe, on migration even, they've been quite pragmatic. They haven't, in the election campaign, Maloney talks about a naval blockade of boats. Now that's quietly been um, dumped because it's such a ridiculous idea. But um, they did talk about that in the election campaign and probably quite a lot of people liked it as an idea, but they're not doing it. So they've been quite pragmatic in many ways, but on this kind of stuff, the old identities are still there. Historical memory, uh, pacification, and it's an even more incredible aspect to this is that they claim they were the people who saved Italian democracy after the war. They were the real victims. Um, they like to claim victim status. Uh, we, were, we were prejudiced against, we were discriminated against um, uh, in post-war Italy, but we, we stayed within the democratic system. They want credit for that, which is, you know, a bit hard to take, but nonetheless, that's the, that's the line there they've been pushing. So that stuff hasn't gone away, and that stuff's still around. Um, and the other stuff you could probably put very much into the far-right playbook of many countries, including and Trump and, and uh, Braverman and uh, Le Pen and so on. Um, will this shift the balance of, of Europe towards the far right? Well, it's an important country. Um, if France, if Le Pen wins in France, what happens then? You know, there's a lot of questions that you could ask about that. Um, but I think for me, for personally, I, I obviously want to resist a lot of the things that they're trying to do in everyday life, but I also want to kind of push back against the revisionism and, and that kind of narrative that is being pushed a lot um, by this government for the first time, not accepting even Berlusconi, for all his faults, did actually kind of occasionally go. And now he's going, he's now seen a space on the left, so he's becoming a big fan of the resistance. Uh, <laughs> you never know where Berlusconi is going to go next, but that's what he's doing at the moment. So that's kind of two parts um, of, 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 of the talk. and. Um, First one about historical fashion, second one about where we are with, with, with the Maloney government today and, and where the future lies um, with Italy, which we will see. Um, I, I, I actually think this government will last its full term. There's no reason for it not to. And um, so fasten your seatbelts for, for what's going to happen over the next few years. Okay, I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Um, we've got a good chunk of time for questions, discussion, comments, and thoughts. So um, if you've got a question, just wait till the microphone comes and perhaps just say who you are and where you're from for our online audience. So this gentleman here. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, 
Why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. I'm Sudarshan uh, from Hi. the School of Public Policy. And uh, I was wondering when you said that uh, looking at the violence from a perspective different from what is otherwise mind-numbing, um, do you think there are some takeaways for, say, the discourse on the Holocaust? Because whenever we look at it, we quickly run into the concentration camps and the final solution. So uh, if there are any takeaways on that. And the second thing, uh, with respect to the Italian Senate, um, from a perspective of uh, Indian expats living there, there has been a case of um, some sort of a modern slavery of Punjabis who are working on the Italian farms. Do you think it has something to do with the uh, right-wing regime which is there, which sort of plays an enabling role in such sort of businesses? So these are my two questions. Shall I answer straight away? Yes, yeah. I think so. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, so first question about um, how to tell, how to talk about violence. And I'm not, I'm, I think, um, I'm struggling with it. I, I'm kind of experimenting with it. I'm, I don't, I became very dissatisfied with a lot of things I read about, about this violence and how it was told. And it was if, it was often with, I'm not naming any names, but when people talked about violence, it was as if they were talking about sort of tomato prices or, or you know, something very bland. As if, as if violence was the same as everything else. And your point about the Holocaust is, is interesting because I think if it just becomes numbers or huge stats or sort of it, it, it becomes something that kind of can go one ear in, in one ear and out the other and doesn't really, you're kind of the violence itself is being lost. I don't know what the answer is, um, but increasingly, and I talked about this in another forum, I think we often get closer through fiction, through other media, uh, journalism, gets closer to, so I found some really good examples of, of talking about um, violence through those media. And maybe that's where we have to go and get creative and, and think of, of kind of telling a story about it. Um, so that, and even just describing it doesn't work either, I don't think, because it just becomes like a horror movie or something. But thank you for your question. I'm sure there's a lot more to say there. On the question of modern slavery and, and immigration in Italy is a really interesting one. You know, this, a lot of this sort of rhetoric about great replacement theory, um, we don't want the migrants, of course, is, is fake because actually large parts of the economy rely on, you know, um, very cheap labour, certain kinds of labour, very specialised um, and exploited labour. So there's that double discourse um, that's been going on for ages. That, I mean, the Lega has kind of specialised in that. The Lega, you know, which runs most of the north, where a lot of these kind of industries are, have been saying, oh, we don't want the immigrants. But, well, at the same time, almost at the same time, being supported by industries that are exploiting them. So it's a very, it's a very dishonest um, uh, narrative that, that's going on here. Same in America often as well. So I don't think this contributed to the modern slavery. I would, I would say that's been around under all kinds of governments. But, um, and we could talk about racism, but I think that the, 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 the you know, stop the migrants is a, is a fake um, political narrative that is that they know that this is going to happen anyway and they, and they enable that uh, black economy to, to expand.
Thanks. I'm just going to go to an online question, then I'll, I'll come back to the audience here. Um, just to the people online, I mean, it would be helpful if you also said who you were and where you're from, but this question is from anonymous user. So um, it's about the First World War. How much does the First World War play into the turn to violence that you described in 1921? Presumably many of these figures were veterans and shared a history of trauma. And how does the lack of a similar shared memory of trauma influence how Fratelli deploy political memory today? So kind of two parts about the impact of that generation. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a big question. Um, First World War is obviously crucial. You don't get this without the First World War. There's a whole kind of literature on brutalisation and how that how that connects up to um, to what's going on. A lot of the squadristi directly come from uh, shock troops like the Arditi. The first squadristi are actually straight from the Arditi, who were the shock troops from from World War One. But you've got soldiers on both sides. I think it's, I, I, I find it, it's not, it's, it's, it's a politically organised violence that I think is, is not necessarily to do with the war. Um, and that the violence they use is not necessarily the violence they used in the war. And I think you have to be careful to separate the two. This is almost cold, very, very organised political violence. Um, and that's different to what they would experience in the trenches. There is a difference, and I think you've got to be careful not to say, oh, they're all brutalised and that's what's happened. I think you miss a lot about the squadrist if you do that. Shared trauma of the Fratelli d'Italia, I'm not, sh- um, not sure about that. Um, I mean, their idea of fascism is very, is such a distant one um, that, you know, they're, they're third or second or third generation away now from that and that's just kind of what their grandfather what they read in books what um this kind of tradition passed down of Mussolini as victim and uh, there's a very powerful trope in Italy not just in Italy that Mussolini also did some good things which is very powerful kind of cliche um which is which is um, around so I'm not sure about shared trauma or lack of shared trauma with Fratelli d'Italia, they certainly paint themselves as victims of various things, um, which is part of their narrative, that Italians were victims in the First World War, the Second World War, Italians were always victims, never aggressors. They, they choose their dates very carefully when they talk about history. It's always, um, they never talk about the invasion, they always talk about the, the post-invasion violence against Italians. Um, so, and they also paint themselves as victims, as I said, politically. Great. So um, got some questions here. I think possibly the gentleman with the glasses will come to you next. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Martin. I'm uh, a master's student here at LSE. Uh, I have two questions, if that's okay. Um, the first on sort of the contemporary dangers you've mentioned. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak more about uh, whether you think or what the effects, the enabling effects maybe of some of La Russa and some of his... Um, co, co-fascists, if you can call them that, might be on people who do have these latent um, associations with historical fascism. I mean, you see every other week videos of small crowds in, in towns doing Roman salutes and such, and, and I'm wondering if you think that is also an effect um, 
that could be developing long term. I mean, seeing your ideology represented in state offices and what that could have. Uh, and then the second one is about memory. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk about what did or didn't happen in 1946 and in the immediate aftermath that allows fascism to remain such a not taboo um, ideology or, or movement as it did in other places, perhaps. I, the, the anecdote I always cite is that in my hometown, Mussolini is still on the books as an honorary citizen. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any insights on that. Uh, thank you. Um, thanks. Thanks for your questions. Uh, on the first one, I think there is a danger of normalization, uh, tolerance towards these things, or as I said, but I'm treating it as a joke. Uh, nostalgia is the word that's used, which is sort of like plays it out as this kind of sort of um, like clowns, and therefore we're not to be taken seriously. And I think, you know, you get certain... I've just been, a couple of weeks ago, I just went, I never visited it, a place called Pradapio, which is where uh, Mussolini was born, which became this sort of fascist playground under the regime. And that they've, they've been battling for years with neo-fascist tourism, neo-fascist uh, commemorations and what to do about it. And now it's suddenly come back into the spotlight again. Um, so I think it is, I think it's to be taken seriously, uh, this mainstreaming of this um, stuff and not to be laughed at. And I think that has been, for a long time, it's been seen as something trivial um, or jokey or silly. Um, and we should be outraged by it a bit more. But it doesn't mean that fascism is returning. Uh, so I think we need to be careful not to be over the top the other way, which is, which is becoming a bit, becomes a bit silly if you say... Uh, yeah, I think that's something they're even using, um, someone like Maloney might use and saying, you said fascism's coming back, and look, we're fine, we're still a democracy. You know, it's kind of to trivialise the, the opposition to her. There is a whole question about anti-fascism as well, which is, which is an interesting one. Your second point about, which is a sort of big historical question, is about what happens to Italy after the war, and of course that's partly a product of history. Italy can present itself as having won the war because of what happens in the war. Therefore, it doesn't need to de-fascistise as much. Uh, plus you have a very high... Um, the Communist Party very much wants to uh, not talk about fascism anymore and wants to pass as a massive amnesty. It's not going after leading fascists anymore. So there's lots of things politically. On the other hand, you have a very powerful anti-fascist constitution, um, which, you know, sets down, creates a system where nobody can have too much power, and that's still true. And one of the things Maloney wants to do is to create a directly elected prime minister, which no country in the world has, as far as I know. But that, I mean, I think that would be political suicide, personally. <laughs> Good luck with that. Everybody who's tried to change the constitution in Italy has come up like... Renzi committed suicide that way. So she may try and do it, but I think she'll probably say, oh, nobody's letting me do this, so I couldn't do it, which would be more politically astute. But that's, there's much more to say on that, but, um, yeah, those are kind of the broad lines of it. There is a bit of a cliche that Germany did everything right and, and Italy did everything wrong. I think that's quite the case. You know, 15,000 people were killed in two weeks in 1945. It wasn't a joke, um, you know, the transition to... Um, 15,000 mainly fascists which were killed in about a week. So it wasn't, it wasn't a peaceful transition um, or, or a pro-fascist transition, but there were lots of issues about who was still around and continuities. So I'm going to take another question from the online audience. This questioner asks about 
whether there are similar anti-democracy sentiments amongst contemporary neo-fascist movements as there were in the 1920s and 30s. And it refers to what you said about Maloney, that uh, she nominally has a pro-democratic stance, but what about the movement beneath it? Maybe I could just ask to add to that for you to, I mean, the erosion of democracy that we see in some of the other countries you mentioned is, is a very incremental process at the mm. moment. I mean, what, what would be the effect of this party enduring in power, or is there a longer-term perspective to worry about? Well, there's been, I think, over quite a long time, Italian democracy's been in, in trouble. Um, you know, post Colin Crouch's stuff on post-democracy, I think, applies quite well to, um, to Italy. Um, you know, emergency governments, non-elected governments... Um, then you know that the last thing that happened was the Five Star Movement, which is this big protest populist party, managed to, this one thing they did get through in a populist way was to reduce the number of parliamentarians quite drastically. And I think that was a problematic thing for the representation. So the number of parliamentarians went down by hundreds last time, which also creates less people, or less people in power. So that's an interesting thing. Um, very few, less people voting which is an erosion. Italy is always a country with very high turnouts, only 64% last time, a much bigger non-vote. Again, that's a, the engagement democracy is, is, is lessening. That was one of the reasons Maloney won. Uh, and also an electoral system which allows a, a massive amount of power. Actually, the centre-right went down in terms of overall votes, but it's still got an enormous amount of power and majority because of this very, um, what's called a porcellum, which I won't translate, um, very, very complicated and, and strange electoral system that was a, a terrible compromise between various pieces. So there is a lot of that happening. In terms of anti-democracy sentiments, they very much play the game that we're very much protects as democracies. Part of their kind of spiel is we've always been democratic, we've always been in the system, you should be thanking us for that, you should be, we, you know, we saved Italy, we could have gone off and been fa proper fascists, and so they, that's part, very much part of their, what they say, what they do is it's not always the same. One of the things I think is interesting is um, crackdown on protest, um, in, uh, not just with police um, activity, police feeling enabled, by this government, but also um, a, a new law, again, it may seem familiar in the British context, um, supposedly against raves, but um, in fact very, very wide powers given to police to, to round up people at demonstrations or gatherings, um, and that is, you know, interesting. So, um, yeah, there, there's things moving both ways, but they're very much, their, their narrative is that we are, we're, we're protected as democracy. You, you, the communists, are the problem, right? That's, that's what they say. Uh, what, what they do, we'll have to see. And um, nothing too much so far, apart from this protest law, which is not as bad as the, the one we've just had here, I think. Great, thanks. Um, I believe we have to speak into the microphones oh, more clearly. I think it's me, but perhaps we should both do it. Um, so other questions, I think, um, yes, this lady here, please. Just wait for the microphone. Okay, thank you. Um, Alexandra Illes, I'm a alumni. Um, one question um, I have is why you think or what you think are the key reasons in the political climate for Meloni's um, success and what are the parallels to 1920 on the one hand and what are parallels to other countries? Do you think they are merely economical? Um, so what are the main reasons for a shift to the right in many countries? Um, I'm not sure there was a shift, shift to the right. 
I don't think she necessarily represents. I mean, Salvini on many things was more extreme. Uh, on immigration, I would say he was as extreme or not more extreme than Maloney. And Maloney is actually more pragmatic. So I think there's been a shift. The, the reasons Maloney won from a very political, purely political point of view was a shift within the coalition. Salvini's votes, Salvini at one point was at 45%, and then he's been on the journey down and down and down since then. Um, his votes largely went to, to Maloney's. There's a shift because of his political mistakes, because of her promotion, her image, which I think is very, she's a very interesting speaker. She's very, quite charismatic, quite clever cultivation of image. There's things like that that are reasons for her to win. I don't, I wouldn't put it down as a shift necessarily to the right or the left. The figures don't really bear that out. It's a shift towards a different kind of right within the, a very free marketeer. Maloney is, is very much kind of, um, you know, free market, which is not something we've seen um, in, it's, it's kind of different to her tradition there. The other thing was that the fact that the, um, Maloney's party, as I said, stayed out of the coalition and was able to present itself as outsiders. So we, we weren't responsible for anything that's happened under COVID and, and, uh, and we, we were outside. That really helped the, the shift of the, from 4% to 26%. Um, so lots of things um, going on. I don't think necessarily an ideological attachment to her is, is the key part of that, of that shift. Parallels for the 1920s, I don't, apart from kind of economic crisis, political instability, I don't see too many. I mean, in fact, you know, there isn't violence on the streets, there isn't uh, the rise of socialism, <laughs> for sure there isn't. Um, so not many parallels with with the 1922 period. Um, and the third part of your question, um, international impact, I think this is really interesting in terms of empowering people like Orban, uh, the, the European coalitions that she's creating um, and normalizing someone like her. I mean, when, when Gianfranco, when the neo-fascists came into power with ministers in 1994 and they went to Brussels, people refused to shake their hands now it's all lovey, lovey, chummy, chummy uh, with Maloney and Sunak and so on. So I think um, this normalization of that kind of politics is, well, it's everywhere now, isn't it? And I think she's contributing to that. And I don't, I'm not an expert on French politics, but if Le Pen wins next time, we've got a very interesting situation there. Okay, um, so I have a question um, from an online um, participant, Tim Frost who asks, does the Brothers of Italy draw support from the same social groups in society as the fascists did in the 1920s? Is it stronger in some regions and in some sections? And the questioner goes on to ask about the support of women um, for Maloney and what the significance of her leadership is in that regard. I mean, I, I haven't seen all the stats on this, and I haven't done sort of breakdowns. Anecdotally, it seems she did very well amongst women, amongst young people. Remember, she only got 26% of the vote, which is kind of where the Tories are now in Britain, right? So who apparently meant to be doing tanking. So it's not this sort of plebiscite. Um, it's the kind of structure of the system that makes it look like a plebiscite, but it's not a plebiscite. It's one in four people are voting for her. Same social groups, um, not particularly, I think, it, and again, the stuff I've seen, I have to look a bit closer at that. I think it's from across the scale. You know, people were, 
even people on the left who I spoke to were saying, let's give her a chance. There isn't, you know, those, those prejudices, anti, the outrage was not there. Okay, and we, maybe we think that's fine. But there wasn't that. 94, that would have been something you would never have heard. Um, you know, let's give the near fascists a chance. Uh, you, but now I think that's fairly common. And I don't think there was any people who would like having sleepless nights um, the day she was elected. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't have the knowledge, unfortunately, to answer that any, in any better way than that. But let's not go overboard in, 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 in the triumph of Maloney. It's, 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 it's more complicated than that. Okay, so uh, questions here. Yes, this person with the glasses. Hello. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for the talk. I must say that I'm an undergraduate student here at the LSE. Uh, it appears that the far right is pretty popular among the youth in Italy, with the recent poll concluding that the uh, the fertility Italia being the largest, capturing the largest proportion of votes in the 18 to 21 demographic, and with the second most popular party also being far right. So, what does why does this tendency exist, especially compared to the UK and the US, where the youth is primarily attracted towards progressive left wing politics? And what does this mean for the future of politics in Italy? Good question. And you've got more stats than me, so that's good. Um, I think, you know, she after the election, she became more popular. And all the polls were saying she was 40%. I mean, this is very, we've seen this before in Italy, of the very rapid rise and fall of three or four leaders. Renzi went through the same parabola, as they call it in Italy. So did Salvini, and we may well see it with Maloney. I think we have to talk about the left for a second, um, you know, which I haven't mentioned, which probably is, is, is kind of indicative of something. You know, the, the, the kind of long-term crisis of the social democratic post-communist left in Italy is a contributory factor to this. 18%, um, a party that we can was, you know, is, is, has been in crisis for a long time, is not, doesn't seem to be able to change. Um, and is really down to its core. You know, really, when you look at the local elections, we're down to the sort of Emilia, Romagna, basically, and Tuscany. You know, there's no... The red, the red areas have been progressively... Um, Umbria used to be red. It's not at all anymore. Marca used to be red. Now it's voting for Italia Italia. So, you know, we could do some comparisons with, uh, with other places there. But um, I think that the left has not been able to renew itself, not been able to gather any support amongst young people, and that support has gone to someone from a completely different ideology. So that is another story to tell, and that's part of a story. I think there is something interesting happening, however, because um, the Democratic Party has its leader elected by something called a primary, which is kind of beyond, it's not just the members of the party, it's a much more, it's a wider, they open up the vote to almost, you know, you can, to many people to vote for the leader. And by, by surprise, someone called Ellie Schlein won the election. She wasn't supposed to win the election. It was supposed to be the extremely grey functionary guy who usually wins for the Democratic Party. And I think she's interesting. So something's happening there. It, it, need, it needed renewal. And she is actually challenging Maloney on many areas which nobody's been doing. So maybe there's a little spark there. I don't want to go overboard because it's very early days. But 
you know, some sort of renewal is really needed there. There was a little bit of something happening before COVID with a movement um, of young people uh, called the Sardines. But like many movements, um, this, these are rising and falling very quickly. So that was a bit of a way all over the place answer, but I think, I think we need to look at the left as well. Thanks very much. Um, the audience might be interested that we have an event in four weeks' time about the future of social democracy, in which Adam Zaworski, who's been thinking about this question for about 40 years, is going to reflect on you know, what are the opportunities as well as what are the constraints, because it's very variable around the world. There's some places where it's just carrying on as normal, other places where it's absolutely tanking, and some in the middle, and this is part of that discussion. I'll go to an online question. Um, it, it a little bit follows on from the last question. So the questioner asks, what strategies or approaches are left-leaning parties in Italy adopting to address the challenge posed by the rise of the far right? And are there any notable coalitions or alliances forming to counterbalance the influence of the far right? Um, um, well, I think then the not, other thing... Not during the election, it seems. <laughs> no, yeah. well, not, certainly not during the election. I think with something we, need, we do need to talk about is the Five Star Movement, which was this extraordinary internet-based populist movement which grew from nowhere in Italy and basically took central power um, and took power in Rome and then took power in Turin. I mean, it was an amazing... Um, and it has been quite studied. Um, but that is clearly, again, that the Five Star kind of did, was in government, didn't achieve very much apart from this reduction in parliamentarians, um, had a lot of corruption scandals also affecting it. But, you know, well, where are they? And can, can the left ally with, ally with that party? Because if it doesn't, it's going to lose again. Um, so there, there's a real structural problem here. Um, you have to be in alliance to win the election, have any chance of winning the election, and you've got three-way split. And it doesn't look like there's no sign of that kind of being overcome. And then without that being overcome, the right will walk next time as well, whatever they do in government. I mean, they've got, they won't lose if they're allied. Um, is there anything happening? Well, I talked about Schlein. I think that is interesting. She's bringing something fresh and new, but if the party itself is a very old, aging structure, always has been, very hierarchical, very unmodern, with very few ideas, and not even very interested in, in anti-fascism or in taking on Maloney on any of these areas. So I don't see huge possibilities there. But alliances, political alliances are crucial to um, any kind of victory, uh, both at local and national level. And um, that involves the Five Star Movement, so you've got to kind of swallow that bitter pill um, if you're going to have any chance, I think, next time. Okay, so um, questions in the room. Great. Um, uh, this gentleman here, um, our sound people say, can everyone speak up more clearly because apparently the online audience is having difficulty hearing us. So if you, if you speak up and I might try... Oh, hello. Uh, my name's Kim Grant. I've got... Um passing interest in Italian politics and cycling, especially at the moment, as you know, the Giro's on. Um, I was wondering, what do you think, uh, do you think the Catholic Church now has become irrelevant or practically irrelevant in Italy in, a, in the way that Mussolini uh, accommodated it in the 30s and it came to an accommodation with them so that, practically speaking, they didn't have a power in the way that they historically have done? 
So a question just to repeat for the online audience is about the Catholic Church and, and whether its power has now seriously waned. Um, it's, the Catholic Church is much less interested in Italy uh, than it used to be. You know, it's, um, the popes have not been Italian for some time. It's not in, it's doesn't, it doesn't see itself under threat um, as it did in the Cold War. It has global um, things to think about. So it doesn't really, it doesn't really get involved in, in the way that it used to, and so directly, you know, like the Pope standing up on the balcony saying, if you vote communist, you're going to be excommunicated. It doesn't do things like that anymore, like it did in the 40s, which, you know, was a, was a fairly clear message that he was sending out at that point. Um, but I think it's, what's interesting is that both Salvini and Maloney have wrapped themselves in the church um, in, in constantly in, their, in the way they present themselves. Uh, presenting themselves as Christians, as white Christians, as representatives of, of that kind of tradition, uh, constantly um, sort of banging on that drum and trying to compete with each other because they're competing in the same alliance for power. And a lot of the policies that Maloney really will press on, and I think here she will, and her party will do things like abortion, um, have you know already raised their head. And um, the Fratelli d'Italia were in power in the Marche, which is a central Italian region, used to be governed by the left. And actually, when they were in power, they made, they made abortion almost impossible for women to have in, in the Marche by the way that they pressed on... The Italian abortion law contains an objective, conscientious objective clause. If you're a doctor and you, say, you can say, I'm a Catholic, I don't have to perform an abortion. And they, so many of the doctors in that region partly under the pressure of Fratelli Italia, when said they were conscientious objectors, it was almost impossible to get an abortion. So they will be pressing on stuff that's very much in the church's interests. Um, they don't particularly like this pope, but apart from that, um, I think it's still around as an ideology, but the church and institution is much less interested in day-to-day -day politics in Italy uh, than it used to be. Thanks. So here's another question from the online audience. The questioner asks, to what extent... Do you think that Maloney's political beliefs and the fact that she represents the closest thing to fascism Italy has seen in recent years, to what extent has that diminished the fact that she's the first female Prime Minister of Italy? Well, I suppose that depends <laughs> what side of the divider. It is interesting that first that this the women uh, uh, come from the right in, in uh, the first uh, Thatcher was the first British uh, female prime minister Le Pen looks like yeah she could be the first so that there's interesting there's been some interesting work on this and uh, I think it I think it diminishes anything but um, I think it's interesting that the opportunities um, of, of she's come through where the left has never has never managed to do that uh, at all ever um, but yeah I, yeah, I don't know. There, there, there's, there's some really good research projects going on that I can't claim credit for that, that are worth looking at. I could give people references to them. I've heard some really good papers on this. Hmm. Thanks. Um, so, other questions? Yes, this one here. Thank you. I'm Judith. I'm just a member of the public. Um, I'm interested in returning to the theme of violence and the gap between the narrative um, and the manifesto and working within the parliamentary system and so on and what would actually be needed 
were some of those policies to actually be enacted um, or things became perhaps more extreme as time went on and I wondered whether you could comment on that. For example, current policies like stop the boats um, is something that's talked about a lot and numbers are given but the actual process of how human beings are detained and removed is actually very violent and you also mentioned um, a demonstration for example in Milan and I wonder if only one in four of the population have actually voted for this I wonder what the other two in four or three in four might make of it um, should things uh, progress or deteriorate depending on how we saw it um, what role might violence play in the future and what what view do you have about the role of violence Okay, I just for, I have to summarise briefly. I don't think I can do justice to it, but it's about violence in the present and a series of examples of violence, especially with respect to people claiming refuge and also protesters and asking um, Professor Foote what his uh, prognosis is. It's not going to be the same kind of violence that, that I described um, in the first part of what I said. It's not going to be squadristi, it's not going to be that kind of violence. Um, you're right to point out that the, the policy on migration and refugees is an extreme form of violence. In fact, we had a whole, there has been a whole controversy, one of the moments when Maloney and the Allies kind of wavered or were under pressure was being a mass drowning uh, very recently, uh, which still the full story has not emerged of 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 what the how the politics affected but of course people are drowning every day and have been for 30 years in the Mediterranean in their hundreds and most of them we don't hear about um, and also the way that Libya is being used to offload um, uh, over a very long period offload the containment of uh, migrants and refugees and one of the kind of I think a violent policy that state violent policy is kind of propaganda which is something that DeSantis did in a similar way in America was that um, uh, Maloney's government imposed as being not allowing ships of refugees to land in certain places and forcing them to land in left wing places so, but forcing them therefore to be on the sea much longer um, which is certainly a form of <laughs> state-imposed torture on people. So there are things like that where it has a real effect in the real world. It's not the violence I described. It's a different kind of thing. But certainly those, those policies and those ideas have, a, have, a, have an impact in the real world. They're not just propaganda. Um, but that's also true, unfortunately, of the centre-left and technical governments of the last 30 years in many ways very similar. Uh, in the way they've they've um, um, acted, with some differences, in in the face of um, refugees and migrants arriving by sea and, and by other means, you know this is an issue. We, we've only been talking about it in Britain for the last year, but it's an issue, and so it's been part of the national political de debate since the 90s. I'm going to take another question. I mean, I just wonder if I could follow up on that because, you know, it's often said, people who study fascism, that there's very few ideologically distinctive characteristics of it. Maybe extreme nationalism is one. But another is the sort of valorisation of violence. So it's not that, you know, there's lots of movements that say, well, unfortunately, we've got to engage in violence to get some good ends. It's unfortunate, but that's what we have to do. 
But it's often said that fascism sort of gloried in violence and thought it was a good and it was an end in its own right. I mean, if that's so, it's playing a very powerful role in the whole um, identity of that movement. And given what you said about the historical memory, I mean, what has, what has happened to that? And, and why is it possible for a movement of which that is true to continue to have traction? Mm. Um, yeah, well, it's a great question. I wrote an article I wrote um, after my book sort of deals directly with that, which is the removal of violence from a lot of the historical accounts of fascism does that job, is that it kind of... You know, and also abroad, often people see Italian fascism as basically benign, a bit of a joke, Mussolini was a bit of a buffoon, you know, and, and I've been, uh, over the last 10 or so years, and that's certainly not me, but it started with other historians have been putting the violence back in, not because, for ideological reasons, because it was there and it was taken out. And often the March on Rome is, is presented as this kind of sort of theatrical uh, power game between Mussolini and the king. Whereas if you look what's happening, you know, there's lots of people like that guy I showed. That kind of thing is, is really at the heart of it. So um, I think we need to historically recenter that violence to recenter fascism as, as absolutely intimately connected with that. It doesn't exist without it. Um, and that hasn't, and it's been taken out. And, um, and, you know, that's constantly in, in many of the historical accounts and also, you know, in the way that fascism is talked about. The real fascists are the Nazis and the Italian fascists are kind of joke fascists, sort of playing at it. And that really gets me annoyed when I hear that. Um, so, um, yeah, I think it's a really good question. OK, um, we've got time for a couple more questions. Does, does anyone, um, was anyone wanting to put their oar in? Feel, feel free if you would like to do so. I'll just give the audience a, a second more to think about and, and take one more here from the um, online audience. So um, the, the, the question here asks actually about the Italian king in the, hmm. in the rise of historic fascism and asks what that role was and what the view of that mon monarch was. I mean, perhaps I'll just add to it that there are some countries where monarchy seems to have dampened authoritarian trends at certain times. I mean, Spain at one point. And mm -hmm. It's notable that the most enduring monarchies, uh, most enduring democracies have been constitutional monarchies. But Italy doesn't seem to be such a case. So is there something to be said about the Italian king in particular? Um, Not really. But he, um, yeah, the king enables Mussolini's seizure of power. He, he refuses to sign a, a, a decree which would have resisted um, uh, the fascists when they come to Rome in 1922. I, I think by that time it's too late anyway. I mean, the, the, the fascists have basically taken power. And... Um, the resistance was almost impossible. They, they basically already won at that point. But the king enables the taking of, of the Mussolini's taking of power. He enables the dictatorship. He likes it. He's, he's crowned king of lots of countries which Italy invades. But then it comes, and Mussolini leaves the king there for 20 years, thinking that he's not going to, he's a benign sort of um, figurehead. But he also leaves the king with his powers. And there's that fascinating moment in 1943 when the, when the war's going badly wrong and the king suddenly realises he has 
the power to, he is actually the head of state and he has Mussolini arrested um, and, uh, and uh, sort of brings fascism down himself. So there's a fascinating moment there, but it's almost entirely out of self-interest as opposed to anything else. And, uh, and then, of course, um, Italy becomes a republic in 1946 with a referendum, um, which is a very dramatic moment in uh, Italian history after the war, uh, which I've written about in another of my books um, on 19, post-1945, um, and uh, has to go into exile in um, Switzerland um, and, by, and by the law of the constitution cannot live in Italy, although eventually they do come back uh, having apologised for lots of things. Um, but came mainly for gossip magazine fodder by that time. So there isn't much to be said for the monarchy, but they do. He does act at that moment in 1943. But by that time, probably his own institution is also sealed. So you can get rid of a monarchy, by the way. <laughs> it can be done. <laughs> well, that experiment will be tested in coming years. Um, listen, thank you very much. I mean, that's an incredible wide-ranging talk. You've not just dealt with what was going on 100 years ago, a matter of, as you've said, of enduring interest, enduring significance, a very formative thing for modern politics, but also given us some insight into what's going on today and um, some of the trends that we can see in front of us. So can I ask you all, and to thank our online audience as well, to join us in thanking our speaker, Professor John Foote. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.